those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic consulting and marketing firm for addiction treatment behavioral health centers. Today, we have on a very special guest, Dr. Mark Lewis. Uh, If you are familiar with research at all in this field, you will be familiar with his work. He is one of the leading neuroscientists in the world on addiction treatment. And so I'm very, very excited to have him on the show and share some of his insights into the inner workings of the brain and how that works to drive addiction and addictive behaviors. We'll also get into the rather esoteric topics of genetics and neurochemical balances, but we do it in such a way that it is very down to earth and it's very easy to understand. One of the reasons that I wanted to have Mark on the show was because he is very, very good at taking very dense topics and making them understandable to the layperson. Before we jump in, I want to mention our great sponsors, The Revenue Solution. They are the industry's premier service dedicated to helping treatment centers collect patient responsibility like deductibles, co-pays, out-of-pockets, travel expenses, paid-to-patient checks even, and services denied by insurance carriers. Serving facilities of all sizes nationwide, the Revenue Solutions holistic process ensures compliance while providing a game-changing stream of new income, all without adding any new cost to the center. The Revenue Solution works strictly on a contingency basis, so you don't pay unless they actually bring in the results for you. It fills your bank account from day one. You can call 844-314-8867 or email info at therevenuesolution.com. Uh, TJ and his team over there are fantastic, and this is definitely something that I recommend to our clients all the time. Um, patient pay collection and responsibility is very important from both a legal standpoint as well as a profitability standpoint, so recommend you reach out to them. Okay, so getting back to Dr. Lewis, like I said, a uh, good friend of mine. I think at this point we go back and forth quite a bit in email exchanges debating different topics and different things within the research and within the data. And so I was very glad that he was willing to come on the show. Um, Before we kind of start with that, I also want to highlight the fact that he is um, calling from the Netherlands, and that's where he currently teaches and practices. And he also originally grew up in Canada, so outside the U.S. I bring up that point because Dr. Lewis comes from a very strong harm reduction perspective, as does the vast majority of um, researchers and clinicians outside the U.S. AA and 12-step models and abstinence-based modalities um, largely grew out of the social movement of Alcoholics Anonymous in the U.S., and so sometimes when you get outside the country, clinicians find it a little bit odd that there's not more of an open approach to different modalities and an openness to harm reduction. Um, So just kind of wanted to bring that up just to prepare people that uh, he's coming from a very different perspective than many of us that have lived solely in the U.S. are used to. And I also want to talk a little bit about the subject of neuroscience, 
Um, it can be very complex and people don't really understand it very well in the field, clinicians and medical practitioners included. So we do dive into it, but I feel like it's kind of covered in different parts. So I just want to clarify it before moving forward here. So the easiest thing to understand is that your behaviors, your thought patterns, um, your beliefs are created through neural networks neural pathways um, in the brain. And so these have to be created through life experience. It's like building a road, right? You can't just have a road there. It has to be created. People have to work on it, etc. cetera. Um, the neural pathways in your brain are like an extensive highway that has to be built over time. That's very, very different from some people's um, misunderstanding that maybe genetics create a behavior. Genetics can influence a behavior, but they can't create it. So, for example, your genetics might have a situation where the myelin sheathing around your synapses is thinner than the average person's. And because it's thinner, information travels a little bit more rapidly, which ends up often resulting in maybe someone being a little bit more impulsive. So the genes would not create impulsive thought patterns or impulsive pathways, but the fact that your myelin sheathing around the synapse is a bit thinner might encourage that kind of behavior. While at the same time, uh, the way that you build your neural networks can counteract those effects very easily most of the time. Um, think about it very simply as you can't be born knowing how to speak Chinese or English or Italian. Those have to be learned, right? You have to build the neural network. Same if you're trying to learn to ride a bike or even doing math. You know, there's a Amazonian tribe called the Paraha that can't count past two. They have words in their language for one, two, few, and many. And so they've done a lot of interesting research around uh, the tribe and the fact that they can't actually recognize numbers above two. If you show them three, you show them four, it's just few or many to them. Their brain never created the neural networks to recognize distinct numbers past the size of two. And so it, what I'm trying to help understand um, or help you understand here is the fact that those neural networks have to be built and they have to be learned. Um, your genes can't just make you know math or they can't just make you know Chinese. They also just can't make you like Game of Thrones or be addicted to something or have an addictive personality. Um, that kind of thing doesn't work. You know, and sometimes people will come back and they'll say, well, you know, what about these child prodigies or my sister was really good at math, but I wasn't. Oftentimes it appears that way, but what really is happening on the back end is that something about their life and experience allowed them to develop in that direction. And so Dr. Lewis and I will talk quite a bit about feedback loops and how that works within neural networks and um, neurological processes. And so let's say that someone's really good at art and drawing. Well, if you kind of go back in time, what you'll find is that they really enjoyed that. And so because they enjoyed it, they practiced it more. And as they enjoyed it and practiced it more, then their parents gave them positive affirmations and feedback saying that their drawing was really good. And then mom decided to enroll them in drawing school or art class at a young age. And so 
that allowed them to draw even better, which got them more praise, which got them into more classes, et cetera. So there's this extensive process of a positive feedback loop happening in that situation with the outcome that you're actually really good at drawing. The opposite happens if you're really poor at math. Let's say your very first experience with math in the classroom is that you do poorly on it while you get frustrated. And so you decide that you don't want to do that because you don't want to do that. You have a mental block and that allows you not to do the math so well. And then you get more frustrated and you get more depressed with it and you decide that you're not good at math. And so you start to avoid math and you don't want to do it at home, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. And so now you have a negative feedback loop where you become poor at math. And so when you look at people's life histories, those things tend to evidence themselves. We'll get a lot into genetics and how the genetics are influencing um, behaviors, because obviously they do have an influence, but the degree of that influence is obviously always up for debate. But we'll talk a lot about the probabilities involved there and some of the incorrect assumptions um, related to genes. But just helping people understand that, again, behaviors can't be driven by a gene. They have to be driven through learning experience within a neural network because it has to be built out. The gene can have varying levels of influence in different ways, but nothing that's going to drive a direct behavior. So I hope that kind of clarifies things for people and sets the stage for this conversation um, because I know it's a complex topic and not everyone's a, a addiction treatment research nerd and you know a neuroscience research nerd like I am um, so you know that's kind of trying to give you that information ahead of time something I really wanted to add is why bring a neuroscientist onto the show as most of you know one of my very strong goals is to improve the field of addiction treatment and to provide better outcomes for people, for patients to be more successful in the work that we do. And so understanding the neuroscience is obviously, and the genetics and everything else that goes into it is an incredibly important part of solving that puzzle. Uh, near the end, Dr. Lewis and I will have a conversation about the fact that sometimes it's very, very hard to apply neuroscientific findings to clinical practice. What I want to emphasize uh, before that conversation kind of happens is that that's true in the sense that if you know that the amygdala is a strong center for emotional regulation, for example, um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything as a clinician, right? Whether that's a center for emotional regulation or somewhere else is, that's not going to change your clinical practice. However, there are definitely strong elements that do affect clinical practice. A very simple example of that is if it takes a long time to build a neural network, if it happens through learning, just like it takes a long time to learn Chinese or to become good at math or to learn to ride a bike, right? And there is a difference between knowledge and experiential learning that creates a belief, behavior, or thought pattern. I can't learn to ride a bike by reading a book about it or having a teacher talk about it, right? I can't learn Chinese just by reading about it in a book. I have to actually talk with people for the unconscious learning processes in my brain to pick that up and create those neural networks that then allow me to actually um, speak and understand people. So when these processes are working together, we can understand from a clinical perspective that, for example, the longer you're in treatment, the more likely you are to succeed because you have more opportunities to build neural networks. Um, also, sitting in a classroom and learning about addiction or learning about behaviors 
is not going to be anywhere near as helpful as actually going and practicing those behaviors. And especially if you're in the real world context and practicing those behaviors. Again, I can't learn to ride a bike from sitting in a classroom reading books about bikes. I can't learn to be in recovery and change my communication styles and learn how to interact with people and learn how to love myself by listening to other people tell me about how to do it. I have to practice that skill set to create that neural network. So that's just something else I wanted to highlight related to why I wanted to have Dr. Lewis on the show because it is a little bit of a departure. We've had clinicians on the show before, um, but obviously we've always kind of connected it back to the business piece. And this is that connection. How do we create better clinical programming in our facilities so that we can help patients better? And then obviously that will drive long-term business results as well. So thank you very much um, for that little interlude. And again, let's jump in and listen to what Dr. Lewis has to say. Dr. Lewis, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here all the way from the Netherlands. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, yeah, thanks for inviting me, Nick, and please call me Mark. And uh, I'm actually a Canadian, but I've been living here with my family for almost 10 years. My wife and I got jobs at a local university, and it's been great living here, but we'll be back in Canada before too long. So what I do, I'm a trained uh, psychologist. I have a PhD in research and clinical psychology. I was a professor at the University of Toronto for over 20 years before, before we moved to the Netherlands. And my, my work on addiction has been the last eight or 10 years. I got into it through studying the neuroscience of addiction. I've been looking at uh, developmental neuroscience, child psychopathology, what goes wrong with kids with anxiety and depression um, for, for years. And I found the neuroscience of addiction very interesting, partly because I had my own drug problems in my 20s and I went through a phase of addiction. And so, you know, that was, that was my entree. And since then, I've written a couple of books and done a lot of uh, pop science writing, a few scientific articles, and uh, I talk really actually around the world about addiction and recovery. So this is really why I wanted to have you on the podcast is your expertise in the area of neuroscience. You know, there aren't too many people that have focused on addiction, particularly from a neuroscientific standpoint. There's been a lot of talk around genetics, and sometimes you'll hear some things in kind of what I consider pop psychology around chemical imbalances and such like that. Right. Um, but, you know, kind of starting from there, and maybe if you, as much as you want to share about your own experience, but can you kind of walk us through your understanding of how addiction kind of comes about from a, a neurobiological standpoint? Um, from my perspective, it's a learning process. It's, it's, you're learning a deep, uh, a very deep habit one that's extremely difficult to break. You can call that a brain disease. You don't have to, but you can. Um, but in fact, when we learn habits deeply, uh, the, uh, the motivational system, the, which is we sometimes called the striatum or the nucleus accumbens, becomes, um, starts to drive all the action and it becomes tuned to very particular rewards, very particular stimuli or events or obviously drugs. Uh, and behavioral addictions, whether it's sex or, or gambling or, or porn. And those rewards start to take on more and more value. And as they do, there is a, a, re, um, a reconfiguration of the synapses in these motivational areas, the striatum and so forth. And that kind of directs the action everywhere else, including the prefrontal cortex, which is where we make decisions. So it's kind of an insidious process when 
you, when you start to think and feel that the only rewards worth pursuing are particular substances, drugs, alcohol, or particular activities like uh, porn or gambling. Um, and basically the brain, you know, starts to rewire itself. I mean, you can compare it to falling in love or you can compare it to learning a, a musical instrument. It's a very deep kind of learning. It doesn't go away quickly uh, because the synaptic changes are fundamental and they're drawing up chemicals. Dopamine is the kind of famous one these days that uh, help to re, um, shall we say, re reconfigure these, these uh, networks of connections, synaptic networks between, between neurons uh, in, in various parts of the brain. So there, there's a thumb, uh, thumb sketch. So I'm going to walk it back a little bit because I think this is something that is still quite new, actually, in the addiction treatment field, particularly around this idea of like neural plasticity and the fact that your brain is constantly building new connections and you know letting pruning off old ones, that kind of thing. Uh, so when we're looking at this process of learning, it's not like the brain is kind of pre-built, or it's not like your genes are creating particular synaptic pathways, you know, based on some kind of DNA code, yeah. there is an interaction with the environment, and those cues drive the learning. You know, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's very true at all kinds of levels. Uh, first of all, the, the genetics of addiction is a very, very messy area. There, there are no genes or gene structures, genetic clusters that that specifically are related to addiction, rather it's particular personality types, such as the, uh, an antisocial or uh, more often an impulsive or risk-taking personality, that if, if, which is partly, you know, partly based on genes. Um, and that's gonna make you more likely to, to try to play around with substances in your probably teenage years, which is gonna make, you know, obviously open more doors to addiction. So there's that. But then at the other, other end of the scale, there's um, a more depressive or, or uh, anxious personality you may also uh, provide some genetic um, uh, predilection for addiction. So you've got rather different personality traits that, that can clump together or that can individually predict to addiction. When you add all these things together and you do the twin studies, it looks like, oh, wow, there's 50% heritability. That's really misleading. It doesn't work like that. It's not like a certain gene predicts addiction with 50% accuracy. It's nothing like that. So the, the learning aspect, is that, do you want me to talk more about that or should I go on to the learning? Um, let's pause there for a second because I think that brings up a, a good part of uh, something that you often talk about, and I think a lot of people fail to understand, is that we're talking about probabilities here, right. and whether we're taking part of it from genes or part of it from the environment or, you know, just kind of personal history and experience, these all change our probabilities. And what I've found interesting in the U.S. is there's this tendency to look at mental pathology as somehow deterministic. You know, if you said that you had, you know, a cluster of genes that gave you a 30% higher chance of cancer. No one would assume that you're gonna get cancer. Right. But if you hear that you have a cluster of genes that make it more likely to get addicted, people assume that you're gonna get addicted. It's a little bit strange. Yes, you're right. That's exactly the logical problem right there. And it's the same with I mean, so many things, whether it's depression, whether it's schizophrenia, a lot of you know, mental problems or emotional problems 
there's also some predisposition, uh, but that has the, the effect of that predisposition is entirely mediated by the environment. And when I say the environment, I'm talking obviously about the, the growing up environment, the family structure, the way uh, kids learn to regulate their emotions, the way teens get along with their parents and families and peer groups, the kind of monitoring and uh, guidance that they get when they need it. All of those factors play a huge role in whether those uh, predispositions are, are likely to, uh, to lead to addiction or not. Yeah, I think to your point, you know, even if we take the cancer example, I think it's if, if men eat broccoli, you know, a couple times a week, they have a 15% less chance of getting prostate cancer. So even if you had a 30% higher chance based on, you know, some genes you inherited from mom or dad, you can still make choices and, you know, live your life in such a way that reduces those chances, you know, over yeah, time. Yeah. Um, and obviously yeah. the same applies to mental health, you know. So what I think is, would be really helpful on your end is maybe to get into this idea of feedback loops within the learning process. You know, this, this idea that if I'm sad and I choose not to go outside today, well, then I feel like I didn't do anything, so now I'm more sad, so then I'll go outside again tomorrow. You can have negative or positive feedback loops, and, and maybe you can get into that. Sure, yeah. And, and, bef and we should mention one other um, fly in the ointment, which is nowadays genetics is changing rapidly, and the idea that there's a certain number of genes, it's now in the 20,000s, that uh, determine behavior from within the organism, from within the body, from within the cell, is just completely wrong. It's just been trashed. And now we are understanding that experience actually changes the way genes are, are expressed. So, you know, genes, their job is to create protein. And that means that they're creating the structures of your body. And that includes, obviously, your brain structures, especially the emotional and motivational structures, the whole works. So it turns out that it's not what genes you have, it's how those genes are regulated. And the regulators, the, what they used to call junk DNA, something like 95% of the DNA, they used to call it junk DNA. Well, guess what? It's not junk. It's, it's different levels of regulation that come, uh, that come inevitably from the environment. So, for example, when you get a kid that grows up in anxious circumstances in, in a, say, a household where there's some kind of um, trauma or abuse or neglect or, or even just, you know, excessively harsh parenting, uh, the, the genes that affect the structure of the amygdala, for example, which is one of the emotional structures, are going to express differently. And that means that's going to create a setting that may never be reversible. So there is something which can be deterministic, but that something doesn't come from birth. It comes from environment. That's the really interesting change in genetics over the past. This is what we call epigenetics. I mean, just Google epigenetics. There's tons and tons of stuff about that. But I like that you bring up that point, and this is something I often bring up in my talks on the subject, is this idea that you can't necessarily unlearn something, but you can relearn or, or learn to do it differently. So I always give the example of a bicycle. You know, you never forget how to ride a bicycle, but right. at the same time, it doesn't mean I need to take my bike everywhere I go. I can learn to ride it differently. I can learn to ride it with no hands. I can learn to drive a car. You know, so that learning is, is there somewhere. It doesn't Absolutely. mean that we have to use that pathway. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly true. And so we... You know, just like with any kind of emotional or mental difficulty, I mean, addiction is not alone. 
in, in that respect. Uh, you learn to rethink how you deal with the problems you have or the tendencies that you have so that you can live a more pleasant life. That's what people do. That's what we all have to do. And getting back to your uh, question about feedback, we need, we need the way you get into addiction, just like the way you get into depression, as you suggest, is um, when you start doing drugs, for example, and feel better for a while and then feel worse and feel guilty and feel ashamed and feel like a creep and an idiot and all the rest of it, then you feel like doing it more. And the more you do it, the more you feel the guilt and the shame and the more you obviously are going to tend to be um, rejected or stigmatized by other people. So most behavioral habits that have a strong emotional component are going to become self-reinforcing feedback cycles. Or if conversely, you know, you can uh, break away and um, get yourself to stop thinking about, you know, drugs, because instead of thinking about the first hour, try thinking about the next six hours when you're not feeling so great, um, then you can reverse the feedback cycle and learn to uh, learn, learn to pursue different rewards that will before long start to uh, overcome or overwrite the, the script, so to speak, that has that has been learned with respect to to addiction. Yeah, I like that, and you know, I, I kind of often describe it because a lot, not everybody, right, but a lot of people do take drugs to get away from some kind of pain. Mm -hmm. Not that different from physical, right? Like if I broke my foot, and I, if I took painkillers to mask that pain. Well, I could get rid of the pain, but then I'd continue to walk on the foot and make it worse. And so then when painkiller wore off, I'd want more painkillers because it hurt more. And then I'd walk on the foot and damage it. You know, I, I think a similar kind of feedback cycle happens within drugs where you're masking the pain, which makes it worse, you know, once they wear off and, and you get stuck in these loops. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and somewhat the same analogy is if you, um, it, you know, it starts somewhere. And indeed, people take drugs and alcohol for emotional relief. I mean, maybe that's obvious. Um, but when we look at it statistically, we can see massive correlations between what, what they call um, childhood, ad adverse childhood experiences. And I know you know all about those. Yeah. Um, adver and your, the number and, and degree of, your, of, of adversity, and that includes abuse and neglect and parental divorce and having an alcoholic parent and a few other factors that just make life damn difficult when you're a kid. Um, if you have that kind of upbringing, your chances of becoming addicted to alcohol or drugs or even to inject, injected drug use uh, are, are increased massively. And there's, the correlations are huge. So, so we really know that um, disadvantages in, and, and difficulties and trauma in the childhood and adolescent years are strong predictors of later addiction. And it's because people self-medicate, you know, they come out of their, their childhood, adolescent years with anxiety and depression, and nobody wants to be anxious and depressed for most of the time. So if something helps, you tend to go after it. Yeah, and you know, I think going back to our earlier point, you know, it just becomes an additional probability that's in it. I think people get into these deterministic arguments of like, you know, this childhood issue causes it, or this gene causes it. But in reality, it's just a mix of different probabilities that all blend together to create, you know, a really complex array of probabilities that you'll never be able to unwind. But yes, when we yes, look at the sure. data, like you're saying, you know, I mean, the twin studies have come under heavy fire recently, right? But um, still, like they would say 50% chance maybe 
Um, but then you look at someone like heroin use in people with three or more ACEs, and they have a 500% increased chance of choosing heroin. So the probability increase from the social determinants are much, much higher than you know the, the um, genetic ones, at least as far as we have in the research today. Right, that's right. And even the genetic ones are masking realities that we can't see. So I think the, the environmental uh, predictors are really, you know, just the most important by far. For myself, I was, you know, my, my parents were, uh, were pretty okay in a lot of ways, but they sent me at one point to a, to a boarding school for a couple of years, and I hated it there. They sent me there when I was 15. It was just a big mistake. Um, all boys school, kind of militaristic. It wasn't my scene. I came out of there depressed. And that's when I started using drugs. It was, you know, it was just boom, boom, boom. So, you know, I eventually stopped. And maybe I stopped because, uh, because of other kinds of resources or regulation capacities that I had thanks to whatever. Maybe, you know, maybe other, uh, other environmental factors when I was growing up. But that's, that's, you know, I'm just trying to, to elaborate the, the, the relationship between trauma and addiction. It's, it's very strong. So your personal experience, I mean, you got heavily involved in drugs at a young age and, you know, quite a lot of time has passed since then. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you also, you'll still occasionally drink, you know, socially, which is something, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. would say is not possible. You, you yeah. want to kind of talk about that based on, you know, the, the neurological learning um, perspective that you come from? It, it's hard to talk about it from a neural perspective, but uh, I, I just think it's kind of idiotic. Like most people who, you know, who are attracted to a, a drug are attracted to a drug or a type of drug. And most people who are attracted to opioids or to psychostimulants like meth and coke, um, they may, are largely not that interested in alcohol. Now, of course, there's interaction effects. So people who take Coke will often take Coke while they're drinking. So if they stop doing Coke, maybe the drinking will remind them of the environments that you know, were conducive to, to, to doing Coke. But generally, it, it's just not the case that you're addicted to everything or you're, you're an addict, addictive type and therefore you better not drink. The statistics with respect to alcohol even show that people who have been, you know, have had al been diagnosable alcohol use disorders um, at least 50% of them can go back to social drinking, despite what AA says. I mean, the statistics are clear. So you now you don't know if you're one of those 50%. And of course, once, once you have uh, discovered that alcohol is your drug of choice, then maybe it's not such a good idea to get back into drinking, even social drinking. But it is not the case that because, because one kind of addiction started to rule your life that you can't ever do anything else that might be addictive. If that was the case, you better not use your credit card either. That's <laughs> very true, right? No social media, no shopping. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it kind of goes back to that, that learning perspective and the feedback loop. So, right, if, if you can, that memory will always be there and that behavior pattern will somewhere exist in your head, just like riding the bike. But there are ways to learn to get around it, you know, whether it's worth the risk of trying to do that, you know, that, that's a personal choice that I think is worth yeah. considering, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think going back to our genetics discussion, what's often interesting that I found is if you are able to, so if you're diagnosed with a substance abuse disorder or alcohol abuse disorder, and then you do go back to social drinking, what people will say is that, oh, you were misdiagnosed, right? You didn't actually have the disease. Someone made a mistake. 
but it's, yeah. just, it just becomes a tautology. It just means that they're defining it by the people that have it, you know, which, which doesn't really have any validity. <laughs> no, it's, it's completely, it's totally post hoc reasoning. I mean, it's just, there's no logic to it. It's a no win situation. And that's really, that's the, I think that's the AA philosophy is that it, you have to be one or the other. It's all black or it's all white. And nowadays we've got statistics and we've got, um, we've got lots of information floating around that just works against that kind of modeling. Yeah, you know, I think another interesting thing that comes up, I was even looking at some of the reviews of um, your book, Biology of Desire, and, you know, people would make the comment, that, and you hear this a lot in the U.S. too, that, you know, I mean, you have not had an addiction problem for decades, but they'd be like, well, you're just an accident waiting to happen, you know, I mean, I don't know how long that takes, apparently, you know, 50 years later, you can still be an accident waiting to happen, I don't know, but you'll hear that comment a lot in the U.S., which yeah. I always find interesting. Well, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, let's say you've had a bad love relationship. You think that's possible? Uh, and maybe someday you'll have another one. And you might even have another one after that. How many people have had one or two divorces? Or, you know, it's that kind of reasoning. It's like yeah. the, it's the fact that something emotionally gripping and major and, and consequential can happen once and have bad consequences. It will never happen again uh, or it's waiting to happen again. It's just, it's just not a sensible way to approach it. Yeah. So kind of going back to the feedback loop portion of it and the neurology or the neurobiology, you, um, can you talk a little bit about, so we've seen that there tends to be a disconnect in heavy addiction from the prefrontal cortex, which is more of the conscious decision-making aspect or maybe the long-term, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, obviously makes it even harder to get out of addiction, but can you give us some insights into that and how that works? Yeah, it starts to get complicated, obviously. Um, the way I think of it is that when, when any strongly motivated beha behavior becomes habitual, becomes daily, uh, daily or, or almost daily use, um, uh, then um, the pathways between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex, particularly what's called the orbital frontal cortex, right on the bottom of the prefrontal area, that's the part of your prefrontal cortex that assigns reward value to things. Well, so that, shall we say, conversation between those brain centers keeps going and that's synapses are changing right there. So you're assigning value more and more to the thing that you, that, that you yeah, are developing an addiction for. Well, so the orbital frontal cortex is talking to the rest of the prefrontal cortex. So now when it comes to decision making and somebody says, hey, you know, I've got some dope here. You want to come and have some or, you know, let's get some cocaine or whatever it is. Uh, that, that decision making process is now influenced by the perceived value of the, of the thing, which has, which has changed over occurrence after occurrence after occurrence. So that's, that's a kind of feedback loop that obviously can grow on itself. So it's not that your prefrontal cortex is offline or that you've lost the capacity to make choices. That's, to me, that's a pretty simplistic way of thinking about it. Anyone who knows at, uh, people in addiction well, as I do, as I once was, uh, knows that you, by no means do you lose your capacity to make decisions or your capacity for will. Um, you rather, decisions become more difficult when you have to decide between doing something that feels very valuable and something else that feels safe. That's it. So decision-making may become more difficult in circumstance, certain circumstances, but it's not that it's offline and you can't do it. Yeah, and one of the things I've, we've talked about before is kind of this difference between, or however you want to define it, unconscious or subconscious learning and 
conscious learning where you know certain processes become automated because you do them so often they become habitual and they don't require conscious thought i mean the way you walk or breathing or you know I, i've even given the example of you're driving home you meant to stop at the grocery store but you find yourself in your garage right <laughs> you know <laughs> we can deal with pretty complex behaviors and have them automated right um that don't require conscious thought and so once it becomes that automated process it's much much harder to change so ingrained. You're right. That, and that, that's probably the more extreme end of the spectrum. So I, I was talking about how the habit sort of creeps into the prefrontal cortex and affects decision making. But addiction can become so severe that really, you know, you wake up every day and you have a drink because you've been doing it every day for the last, you know, whatever, five or 10 years. There really isn't much decision making happening. It's just, as you say, the, hab the habit takes over and the motivational system knows exactly what it needs to do. And that kind of habit, um, you know, the, the not so recent now work by Kahneman, uh, system one and system two learning, there's the fast process of doing what's habitually natural, what comes to mind, just, you know, in a split second versus reflecting and thinking about things. Well, reflecting and thinking about things is actually, it's, um, they, they, in biology, they would, they would call that, it's a more expensive process, met metabolically more expensive. It takes up a lot more juice. And it's also cognitively more expensive and it takes time. So people who do the same thing every day, drink, you know, start drinking in the morning or smoking dope in the morning, uh, they're not going to be thinking about it much. They're just going to go and do it. Yeah, you know, I, I was reading some research. And I think it was saying that the brain takes up 20% of the body's energy, even though it's yeah. like, you know, less than 5% of, of the mass. Um, and they did some study that found that if it was able to conserve energy by continuing with a negative behavior, it was more likely to take the energy conservation over the negative consequences of the behavior. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I got to find that study. It was really, really interesting. Um, you should send me that if you can find it. I will. I'll look for it and give you the link. Um, Okay, so I think there's a couple of different pieces that are coming up, you know, as we look at this. And one, I think your main points has been that the processes that occur around addiction, particularly from a developmental or a learning perspective, are normal processes. You know, they're not abnormal or they're not broken, as I think a lot of people would um, state that they are. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's what I would say, too. Um, so when people talk about addiction as a brain disease or as a pathology, you know, I often will ask the question, well, where do you draw the line? And there is no line. There's no, there's no line in the sand. Um, because like as in falling in love, you can fall in love in a very, uh, in a relate, into a relationship that is, um, <laughs> has got all kinds of negative consequences. People have abusive partners and so on and so forth. But, you know, where do you start to say that something's pathological? If something gets you in trouble, then is it pathological? How much trouble? I mean, if you drive too fast, that can get you in trouble, but would we call that pathological? So it just, to me, it becomes kind of a wastebasket category, not particularly useful. Although, of course, when you look at people in severe addiction, it's easy to see that it's like a disease in some ways. And, and that's, you know, I think that can be a, a perspective that, you know, takes on its own life. But when you really think about it, there, there's no point at which the brain is reacting in some bizarre you know way like it does in alzheimer's for example or even possibly in schizophrenia where the brain really isn't doing what it's supposed to do you don't see that in addiction but rather you see a very very direct um 
push toward a very particular reward and not too much awareness or um, sensitivity to other alternative rewards. That's what you see. And so that process, and again, I think something from U.S. historically, the way they viewed addiction is that there's this kind of obsession with the drugs, right? We've had our, our drug wars, and you know, we talk a lot about not taking the drugs and treatments and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the process that creates that re reward system for drugs or alcohol is really the same as it would be for our relationship or shopping or sex. You know, it's the same cognitive processes. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Uh, one of the other, oh, go ahead. Just, and things become habitual, especially, and, and this is maybe a point that needs to be emphasized, especially in the treatment world, especially if you don't have a lot of other opportunities or you lose track of other opportunities for, for um, reward fulfillment. You know, if you start, if your life becomes more isolated, possibly because of drug use or alcohol use, then you, you lose connections with other people. You lose the sense of, you know, feeling good because you have people that you can connect to. And once that starts to fall off the edge of the table, I think the attraction to the substance becomes all the more severe. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's so clear in the data, at least in the U.S., right, is where we see the highest rates of overdoses are from, you know, single middle-aged men with no high school education. They're divorced or they never had a relationship, no job prospect, you know, blue collar, yeah. probably didn't finish high school. Um, yeah. They're very lonely, right? They're very isolated. There's not a lot of hope for them. There's not a lot of community. And, yeah. and that creates uh, a very negative situation that is likely to end up in, in abusive drug use. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you got nothing else going for you, you know, a hit of cocaine can, can be <laughs> the highlight of your day. Exactly. And give your day structure. I mean, even give your day meaning, so to speak. Well, structure and meaning in one's life, that's, we wouldn't want to call those pathological pursuits, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the other things I really like that you talk about is that brain change does not equal brain damage. And I love that statement. Um, so Nora Volkow is quite famous for kind of having your MRIs up on the screen and comparing you know, the brain of someone on cocaine versus someone who's not addicted to cocaine um, and saying that because there's change, then there's damage. Um, but can you just talk a little bit about that related to everything else we've already covered? Sure, yeah. My book is called um, The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. That's my second book about addiction. And uh, there's a couple of problems with the, the, the kind of research that Volko talks about. For one thing, a lot of the research is with psychostimulants, cocaine and methamphetamine, uh, crystal meth. And <laughs> these drugs by themselves put vast amounts of dopamine into the system. Like that's a chemical effect of the drug. But if you're addicted to heroin or alcohol or, you know, porn or gambling, then the excessive dopamine in the system doesn't come from a substance. It comes from your own body because you're driven towards, driven towards, you're, you're, you're after a particular reward. And that's what dopamine does. The dopamine system, it, focuses your attention and gives you a push or an urge towards, uh, towards your goals. So those are two different sources of dopamine. And, they, and when you look at that on an MRI, I don't have MRI, um, it's conflated. There's a conflation between, you see what I mean? Between the kinds of changes that come from the substance itself and the kinds of change that come from having an addiction. So first we have to remove that conflation. And next is the fact that well, for example, there have been increasing studies now, there's, there's several of them that show that people who have um, patterns of, say, uh, 
changes in the uh, density or sensitivity of synapses in certain areas of the brain because they've been using drugs or alcohol for years, when they stop using, those changes go away or are replaced or you get actually increased synaptic density in the same regions, uh, sometimes more than the population average. So a lot of this stuff leads us to think about this, this, more, this recent emphasis on neuroplasticity. The brain is incredibly plastic. It changes in relation to our experiences. It also changes in relation to chemicals, to trauma, to stroke, to just about you know, anything but then it keeps changing. I mean, people can have very severe strokes and still regain a lot of potential or gain new potentials that will compensate for what they've lost. So the idea that this is a chronic state and it's finished and it's done and that's the way it is, just doesn't really pan out. Yeah, that's a good point to explore. So, you know, this is something again, I talk about in some of my talks is, when you look at the data in the US, for example, the population most likely to have a substance use disorder is 18 to 26 by far. They like double the rate, right? right? But then after the age of 26, they drop off by, I mean, almost 50%. <laughs> yeah. So you know, you've got this comment saying it's, it's progressive, it's lifelong, except 50% of people that were technically diagnosed are, are no longer um, fitting that category, you know, just a, a year after they turned 26. It's quite awesome. Exactly. exactly. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I, I knew it was around 30. I didn't know that it was, but it makes sense. As you approach 30, you start to think of your life in perspective, recognize that, you know, you don't have forever and you better get your shit together. And so <laughs> that's, that's when I got my shit together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah, mine was similar. You know, I think I was about 25 when I'm like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta start figuring this out. <laughs> Yeah, so chronic, no, it's not chronic. Brain keeps changing. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I think is there's a lot of hope there. You know, different yeah. people look at it differently, but the fact that your brain has this potential to constantly change um, and that it can recover from whether you call it damage or just the previous changes that were there, you know, should give people a lot of hope that there's, you know, potential in recovery, which obviously there is because so many people recover every year. Exactly, yeah. And most people recover from all of the substance addictions. The majority of people recover. We know that from the stats. The work of Gene Heyman, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's another interesting point, right? If it's so progressive, then why are so many people recovering all the time? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah, I think the assumption is if you're not touching the drug, then you're in recovery. But the reality, again, is, you know, like you said, at least 50% of people generally tend to go back to recreational use. And there's a lot of research, and you know, Carl Hart's doing some good stuff. Uh, but it's recent, and you know, the fact that recreational use exists for many drugs, not just alcohol, right? It's, it's marijuana, it's cocaine, it's heroin. There are school teachers that recreationally use heroin that are not necessarily um, on a path to abuse or addiction. But they're probably not talking about it at the PTA. Meeting. Yeah, right. Doesn't doesn't come up much. A lot of stigma around it, right? Uh, for sure. That's so one. Thing that we didn't talk about yet, um, we just touched on it briefly in the beginning, was this idea of chemical imbalances related to um, addiction or mental illness. So can you talk about that concept? Um, so to tell you the truth, I'm not even sure what it means. Uh, I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess they're talking about dopamine. Do dopamine is the bad guy. It's the perp when it comes to addiction. And, and as I say, that is, it's, an, it's a neurochemical, it's a neurotransmitter, which is produced by our own midbrain, um, 
which kind of powers the motivational system, focuses attention, and um, gives you a sense of desire or urge or, or a push or, or craving, you know, or circumstances toward a particular goal, whether it's a whether it's a sex partner or whether it's a substance or whether it's uh, you know the, uh, the 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 roulette table. So um, yeah, you get a, you get a lot of dopamine uptake as you approach the reward. So for a while, that part of your midbrain is sending dopamine up to your striatum and, and to your amygdala and other regions as well, which in, enhance the motivational push. So yeah, there's a chemical imbalance in that respect uh, for a while. Um, dopamine does other things. It's quite complicated, but that's one thing it does. And it's also... Yeah, there are other things. For example, people who take opioids, um, heroin or any other opioid, uh, there's, um, because your opioid receptors are getting a lot more action, you're, you're going to be producing less opioids proportionally from your own body. So you're going to need more from, you know, exogenously from outside, from the drug, um, because your whole pain system and discomfort system is now knocked off balance by the quantity of opioids you're getting from, from outside your body. So you could call that a chemical imbalance, sure. But, you know, again, it's, it's something which it, it's not permanent. It's, it's a way that your body has adjusted to a change in input. And just like your, you know, your pupils dilate, well, it's not quite the same scale, but your pupils contract and dilate according to changes in light. Uh, your, neuro, your receptor system, your neuroreceptor system also changes in response to inputs of all kinds. So maybe this would be something, I don't know how complex we want to get, but often when we're looking at the brain or when we're looking at complexity, like the you know, intercorrelation between genes and environment and neurochemical processes, tends to be non-linear, right? There's not a one-to-one -one correlation between dopamine goes up, I'm happier, dopamine goes down, I'm sad. Um, sure. You know, can you want to kind of talk about that non-linear, more organic style uh, of system? I know that's a big question. Yeah. First of all, I mean, dopamine isn't really a pleasure chemical. That's, that's kind of been debunked by, you know, by Robinson and Barrage, mostly, and other people too. Do dopamine is a chemical which has to do with desire, which is why I call my book The Biology of Desire. There's, uh, pleasure seems to be a, a different, actually a different neural system. So the dopamine gets you toward the reward, and the reward is, whether it's pizza or sex or heroin, it's, it is whatever it is. And, and, and uh, so some of the nonlinearity comes uh, as a result of the interplay between wanting and liking, as, as Barrage puts it. There's a wanting system and there's a liking system. And one of the insidious things about drug addiction is that the longer it goes on, drug or alcohol, uh, you tend to want it more but like it less. It's less satisfying. Well, cigarette smokers probably know that better than anybody. Uh, so those are nonlinearities that are kind of built into the whole addiction do domain. Was that the kind of thing you're, you're asking about? Yeah, I, I think that, that liking and wanting, that was really a big part of your book, I think which is important for people to understand. And maybe the idea of equilibriums, right? You know, you're creating systems that can handle change. And it's important, I think, for people to understand that, and this is just an example, you'll know better than I would, but let's say that you have a 20% reduction in, in your dopamine levels based on mm -hmm. your life norms. You know, mm -hmm. other systems can change or move around to create a new equilibrium where that 20% becomes your norm and you're perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so whenever there's a change in the amount of a neurochemical, there's probably also a change in receptor sensitivity because every, neuro, uh, every neurotransmitter, neuromodulator, has to land somewhere, has to have a molecular landing place. And the, these things change in relation to each other and they change at different time scales. So it's, it's really damn complicated. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's really the reality, right? You know, and that's why I think there's so much debate around it all the time. Is there is a lot of complexity, and we would prefer it that it would be simple. <laughs> it's not. It's not simple. But I, I think you know the big picture is that um, addiction is something that grows developmentally. It grows over time. The value of the reward changes and grows over time. It's 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 a conceptual reward in part. It's not just that the alcohol or heroin feels good. As I say, it probably feels less good after a while, but it, it takes on a symbolic value. Well, this is what I do. I, I, I have clients in, in addiction that I, I see in uh, online psychotherapy. And um, one woman, she's not an alcoholic, and she said, um, it's an old-fashioned term now, but she said, you know, drinking, well, that's what I do. I drink. <laughs> <laughs> drink and I know things. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think the big picture is that these things do grow, they become entrenched uh, habitually, they become deep habits, but they can also continue to grow. And when people get miserable enough, they'll go to quite, quite uh, uh, major efforts to change the way they, they behave, change the way they act, change accessibility, change social groups, you know, change all kinds of things so that they can get the upper hand. One of the other things that we've talked a lot about, you know, back and forth is choice and how this fits into the whole realm of addiction. You know, where do you kind of see choice coming into the mix, especially as it relates to how the brain functions? I think the sort of ongoing debate right now, especially in the US, is it's either a disease or it's a choice. There's actually billboards. Uh, I I'm show pictures of these in my talks. Um, it's not a choice, it's a disease. And you see, you know, four or five people kind of with half smiles on their faces as, as if, and shrugging their shoulders kind of as, as if to say, well, it's not really our fault because it's a disease. And of course that can be comforting to some people because it, it um, exonerates them, right? It saves them partially from blame and from stigma. On the other hand, it also brings on another form of stigma because now if it's a disease, well, that means you have a mental illness and maybe I don't want to sit at the same table as you when I go to the restaurant if you have a mental illness. You know, it's like, it doesn't get rid of stigma, it changes it perhaps. But the reality is that we don't understand choice very well at all. It's not simple. Like, I mean, the example I often give is when, when you're approaching the stoplight and it turns orange, the choice of whether to go through or put on the brakes is something it is very, very hard to predict. And it's going to depend on mood, associations, what kind of a rush you're in, whether you've got a you know a kid in the back seat who's starting to, you know, starting to cry or whatever, <laughs> whether you're late for work. I mean, it's so many things are going to affect the way we make choices. And choices actually are often a, an unconscious fulcrum that you you go over before you're even aware of it. And we know this now from some um, uh, neuroscientific experiments that show that basically your brain has already made a choice by the time you're thinking about it. So choice is complicated. It's difficult. It's difficult to understand. I, I just don't see it as a dichotomy. It's not either a choice or a disease. Yes, people have choices. I had a choice. I mean, I had a choice each time I took substances, and I had a choice when I stopped. And, and 
it's a difficult choice because there are, you know, biological changes that undergird the addiction. So it's not, you can't just wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm done. It's, it's, it's a choice that requires effort. And some choices do require effort. So I prefer to think of it that way than to think about we either do or don't have a choice about our addictions. Yeah, I think going back to the comments we had on probability, you know, obviously I own a marketing company and if you put the candy bars at the checkout lane in the aisle, you know, people are something like, I think it's 20% more likely to buy the candy bar, right? Yeah. Is the candy bar being in the checkout lane making you buy the candy bar? No, but it's increasing the chance that you might do it. You know, another interesting stat was like, people are 30% more likely to leave a bad restaurant review on a rainy day. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? And I mean, the rainy day is not making you leave the review, just like your genes aren't making you drive a behavior, but they both have probabilistic effects on the, the choices of the direction that you're going to go in, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. So, I mean, everything's probabilistic. Behavior is always probabilistic. And another word for it is multi-determined. You know, any behavior is determined by several causes at the same time it's that's that's the way behavior works it's it's complex yeah yeah and that's that makes it so challenging to look at something else just kind of random comment that you mentioned the stigma that i think that was a big push in the u.s right to get rid of the stigma by um labeling it as biologically determined whether it's a chemical imbalance or genes or whatever but the research has been quite clear and they've been doing a lot more of it in the u.s recently too finding that yeah like you said people have a strong stigma against people that they consider to have a permanent disease because they think they can't change right yeah, yeah. so they're less likely to be positive towards them they're less likely to expect them to um you know move towards positive behaviors and so unfortunately you know despite good intentions uh disease mentality has actually increased stigma uh against people who have or are struggling with addiction yeah, yeah, there's been at least half a dozen studies that I know of about that, and other studies, and sometimes they're the same, uh, that show really clearly that when you label it a, a brain disease, when you label it a disease, the uh, efforts to, to quit, to recover, are, are reduced. So the, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? If you're, if you're told you have a chronic disease, how hard are you going to try to stop? People become passive, and they take on a patient role, the role of a patient, I mean, um, doing what they're told, but not with any sense of hope or, or empowerment or a self-determination that, you know, I can change this. I can, I can do this. That, yeah. That's a, a big deal. I think that's yeah. a really important impact of, of, the, uh, of the disease concept. I agree. I mean, the self-fulfilling prophecies, I mean, we've seen that in, in many areas of, of psychology. And I, I think there was a, what was it, back in the 80s, I think it was when they did the study with the Kool-Aid and the alcoholics. And they gave um, a bunch of Kool-Aid, but they said there was alcohol in there and there wasn't, but they still started acting drunk in like 30 minutes <laughs> before wow. Kool-Aid they drank. Oh, uh, I forgot about that. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Effect, right? Good one. Yeah. Right, right. You know, but it's interesting how you can, you know, your brain starts to mimic the expectations that it's going to have regardless of whether the substance was actually present or not. Yeah, that really is interesting. That's for sure. So a lot of our listeners are obviously, you know, running treatment facilities. And you know, we spoke before we got on the uh, air here that it's hard to map um, neuroscientific research to actual clinical practice. Yes. But any comments that you could make around, you know, what you see and what might be more effective, even if it's just something like habit building takes a long time. So the longer they're in treatment, the better, you know, any kind of advice you can give for people trying to provide better clinical care. Uh, there's so many things. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I hope some of your listeners might want to visit my website, which if you Google me, you'll find it pretty easily, I think. Um, or it's, uh, it's called Understanding Addiction, but there's a number of things that come up when you Google Understanding Addiction. Um, but put my name in and you'll, you'll find the website because I've got a blog and I've, it's been active for years and I've got a lot of people who talk about their recovery. And there's, I think, a lot more interesting um, content in some of my comments. They're intelligent, sensitive people, unlike some of these blogs. And, uh, you know, about, their, about the process of recovery than you'll get anywhere else. From, a, from my own perspective, I mean, I, I think people do need time for sure. They need, I mean, 30 days is often not enough. But the main problem is readiness and I think um, synchronizing some kind of help with when the person is ready to change, ready to move, and ready to receive help. Um, one of the things I learned from, um, what's her name, uh, Anne Fletcher's book, Inside Rehab, yeah. is that most most people in addiction uh, recover between the time they phone the rehab and the time they go. By the time they're, they say, okay, we've got a bed for you now. They recover between the time they call and the time they can, they can. So what does that tell you? It tells you that readiness is a huge factor, right? And, and uh, for people who do go into some kind of residential program, I think it's, well, one of the things that is becoming more and more obvious is that people need really individual attention. Not all addicts are, are created equal by any stretch. People have very different life stories, different reasons for having gotten into addiction, different uh, resources and capacities for getting out, different kinds of support systems. So you really have to have some kind of individual component of, of I would say, psychotherapy or counseling or whatever you want to call it. And that might have to go on for some period of time. People need that kind of support and they need it to be tuned to them. So sitting in a room with 30 other addicts and you know, hearing everybody give their two minutes feel just doesn't really have a lot of uh, value. Yeah, yeah, we were talking that before we got on about just kind of sitting around and you know going around in a circle, yeah. <laughs> not being the most effective form of treatment, which is yeah. unfortunately a lot of what you see, you know, um, within a lot of the clinical programs. So, and in fact, there's a, there's probably an iatrogenic yeah. effect, right? Is it which means that the uh, the treatment is creating more of the problem? I mean, if you hear thirty other people talk about their their drug their drug use and where they get it and how they get it and you know how exciting it's been and how nice it feels. Might not do exactly what you want it to do. Yeah, sure. Right. Well, it goes back to our idea of feedback loops, right? And that's why the social environment is so important. And people talk about finding new friends or, you know, getting into school or work yeah. because you're creating, you're setting yourself up for positive feedback loops that are not involving um, abuse and drug use. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, that's incredibly important. And I really like, you know, Johan Hari's message about that, that the opposite of addiction is is connection i think that's, yeah. that, that really captures a lot yeah he just had a new video come out yesterday i saw he posted on his facebook page um about yeah. his journey with depression which is actually quite good yeah. I recommend people checking that out if they haven't seen it yet great okay well sounds good yeah. uh so i think we've covered a lot of ground here is there anything in particular that we weren't able to get to that you want to talk about or any final thoughts you want to conclude with well not really i think uh I think even choosing between residential addiction and some kind of partial um, involvement with a person while they are living in their environment might be an important process. 
And some people might do better to stay where they are and have help um, contending with their challenges. Because one of the problems with you know, residential treatment is that you're in this kind of uh, la-la land for, for some period of time, and then you come back to your lonely little downtown apartment and you're back where you were, and the habits then have this incredible power to just come at you out of the woodwork and say, okay, you're back, here we go again. So, I mean, I think that's something we have to be aware of. It's just the way people, you know, that we're very sensitive to our environments. Yeah, you know, I, I think a final comment there on some of the things we've covered about, but context is so important from a, a learning perspective. And I mean, I, you speak a couple languages, I speak a couple languages, and I always had a comment from one of my friends where like the only Spanish she spoke was in taxis, because but she had never taken a taxi in the U.S. because she lived in a, a normal U.S. city where, you know, she drove a car. So when she came back to the U.S. after living in Spain for many years, whenever she got into a taxi, she would default to Spanish because yeah. that was the learning context where she had picked that up. And right. I'll do the same thing. Like I speak Turkish with my wife. And so when I started thinking about my wife, I'll switch in my head to Turkish, right? It's just automatic right. because that's my context. Yeah. And so understanding that context is part of learning and those feedback loops, I think, is, is pretty critical for people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've got I've got a client who's still doing coke uh, every day, except when she goes to Europe for two or three months and she doesn't even think about it. That's, <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> the environment really is important. So maybe then maybe the, yeah, maybe you just need to move to Europe. Huh? <laughs> oh yeah, it's great here. Well, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Lewis. I know you're really busy. Um, if people want to reach out to you, if they just want to kind of contact you through your website, you know. You, what's the address or what's the best way to do that yeah that's fine the website is uh it's w it's the website is just the name of my first book my first book on addiction which is memoirs of an addicted brain so it's www.memoirsofanaddictedbrain.com um or just google mark lewis understanding addiction or mark lewis addiction and you'll find it easily enough along with a bunch of online online lectures and you know youtube things and various reviews and interviews and all kinds of things. And then you also do conferences and speaking here in the U.S. I know you come to Chicago um, in a short bit here. Any, any conferences that people would be able to see you at coming up this year? The one in Chicago is neuroscience. So unless you're a neuroscientist, probably not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to understand what's going on there, but I'll try. Um, nothing else planned at the moment, but things do tend to crop up. I was in New York in June for a couple of talks, and uh, I do come pretty much every year and give talks somewhere. Rather, I was last last year. I was at a conference for neurofeedback and addiction, um, and so I, I do kind of you know, keynote addresses of that sort uh, in the U.S. pretty much every year. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Like I said, for all the listeners out there, I hope that this was insightful and useful and you can kind of use it in some of your discussions with uh, your therapists and your clinical directors in, in terms of different um, perspectives that might be helpful um, for patients and clients coming in. As always, I'm Nick Jaworski and this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. We'll see you next time.